celebrating 10 years of podcasting and online ministry, you are listening to the Bellator Christie Podcast, where we take Christian truth into the arena of ideas. Now join your hosts, Dr. Brian Chilton and Curtis Evelo. Coming to you from Pilot Mountain, North Carolina, and Ronan, Montana. This is the Bellator Christie Podcast, where we take Christian truth into the arena of ideas. Uh, this is yours truly, Brian Chilton, joined by the cowboy apologist, Curtis Evelo. And we have a special podcast uh, coming to you tonight, as we're going to be talking about actually two arguments uh, on this episode. We're going to talk about both the moral argument and the ontological argument. And originally, we had planned on giving both arguments their own their own podcast, their own episode, but as uh, fate would have it, we are actually running down low <laughs> on the episodes we have uh, remaining in the season. We've got uh, coming up next week, God willing, this makes like the third time we've tried this, second or third time we've tried to get him on the show. Uh, we're going to have on with us Dr. T.J. Gentry. He's going to talk about a book coming out sometime uh, late spring, early summer uh, called Leaving, uh, I think, Leaving Calvinism, Finding Grace, something like that, I believe. And so he'll be on with us uh, coming up next week, and that'll be uh, episode 27 of the podcast. Just to let you know, the final edits are in. Uh, everything is set to go uh, for conversations about heaven. My own book, second book that I've written, coming out. Uh, it looks to be around May fifth of of twenty twenty three this year, and so uh, they said about thirty days. We're, I'm still waiting to see the cover. The cover should be released here in the next week or so, and so that'll be on its way. A lot quicker than what I had initially had anticipated. So conversations about heaven coming out first of May, probably around May fifth. Uh, so we'll keep you uh, up to date on the very latest about that book. I'm excited about the work, and I'm, uh, I hope you'll you'll be blessed uh, by it as well. And so uh, that's coming out um, also. So. A lot of great things still on tap, but we only, believe it or not, have about, I think, five episodes left. Five episodes left of season six. Where in the world, Curtis, did this season go? (laughs) (laughs) Gone. So so we've actually got uh, this episode. We've got a couple of more uh, we've got, of course, the interview with TJ, a couple more in this series. Then we're going to, um, I think, one on uh, Does God Speak? I'm looking forward to that episode. That'll probably actually be the last episode we cover. We're going to talk about the in- inner witness of the Holy Spirit and uh, also about uh, our experiential, the the the, the um the importance of experiential apologetics. That, that's not given the impact that I think that it deserves. But we're going to talk about the inner witness uh, and then experiential apologetics uh, coming up week after next. Then, then we're going to end the series with a look on uh, asking the question, does God still speak to us today? And uh, we have some compelling answers to give you uh, to that question coming up here in a few weeks. And then... Uh, we're going to take the second week of May off. Uh, we won't have a podcast because I and several of the members of the Bellator Christie team will be going up to Lynchburg, Virginia for a graduation. And then um, after that, believe it or not, I think we only have 
Well, we have two episodes remaining. One, I'm going to talk a little bit about my dissertation, what it was about, and uh, give some of the findings I had on that. I think it's just appropriate after graduation to come back and talk about that. And then our final episode of the season, going to be a very laid-back episode. Curtis and I are going to look back at Season 6, uh, some of the things that uh, that we've learned, some of the things that we've been blessed by uh, during the season, whether it's on the podcast or things that's happened this past season in general. And then we're going to take a look at Season 7 coming up September of this year. And uh, we've got a lot of great stuff coming up next season as well. So we hope you'll be along with, with us for the ride. Join us for the ride uh, coming up next season as well. Just just great stuff. Bibliology, uh, anthropology, talking about humanity, talking about the soul of humanity, and just a, some great, great compelling stuff uh, coming up next season. But with that being said, we're going to uh, hand the reins over to our cowboy apologist, the one and only Curtis Evelo. Hand the reins over. That's yeah. funny. <laughs> uh, yeah. <clears throat> so, uh, yeah. Well, I'm excited to 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 see. Are we going to have a video for uh, uh, Bellator Christie um, for the uh, for the for the graduation ceremony? That's that's a good question. There should be a link. Uh, I don't know what the link where the link. Uh, it, there should be a link on the Liberty uh, page, and I'll have to see if we can find something like that. That would be that would be a good. That's a good idea. Yeah, that'd be great, especially you know having uh, having all of them that are going to be uh, walking down the aisle. So walking walking with their gown on. That's pretty awesome. Um, it's a it's a, uh, it's a unique opportunity to have that many. Um, that are on a on one team actually, you know, walking forward. That's pretty cool. Yeah, we have. Uh, I know um, we have. So myself, I'll be there, of course, and uh, Michelle Johnson. She's our uh, managing editor. She'll be she'll be there. Deanna Huff. She's another one of our contributors, publishers, and uh, works on the team. So that's three. Um, Scott Reynolds, uh, he's take taking a leave of absence, but he's still part of the of the team at Bellator Christie. He'll right. be there as well. And then I know several other people. Scott Highland, uh, he's not on the team, but a good good friend of ours. Uh, Manuel Boglio, he's been on the on the podcast before. Uh, he graduated mm-hmm. this this rotation. He graduated actually before I did. Um, gosh, several others. Mark Ragsdale is one, a good friend of ours. Um, he he graduated just recently, so that's seven at least <laughs> that we yeah. know of, and and probably several others. In fact, I know uh, someone recently defended their dissertation. Uh, Bob uh, Vasindak, uh, he lives in Dallas, Texas. Pastors a church there originally from Chicago. He just finished his, and so that's eight, eight or nine. So uh, mm. it, it's going to be a big class. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty cool and you know they all have they have ties to this ministry it's um in some sort of way it's absolutely kind of cool. neat so anyway we're uh, jumping into this into this uh, moral and ontological argument i i'd like to start off with the ontological argument and so let's give a, a brief description uh and go through what what the ontological argument is 
So the term ontological, of course we have to use all these fancy Greek terms when we talk about anything to do with theology. And this, <laughs> as we've already mentioned several times before, the word logos means word, but it can also mean study of. So the logical part that comes from logos. But here the, the other word is ontos. Uh, and ontos means being. So in, in a sense, ontology is the study of being. Ontological is talking about uh, an argument uh, for God based on his being. And so it comes from, uh, and as Norman Geisler writes, this is the argument from the idea of a perfect or necessary being to the actual existence of such a being. And uh, so it... This one can be a little more complicated and, and a little more difficult to understand of all the arguments, but there are some versions of the ontological argument that I find really quite compelling. Uh, Alvin Plantinga has recently defended the ontological argument quite successfully, in my opinion. And so uh, while it's a little more complicated, complex than some of the other arguments, it really does have a basis... Um, on especially when you look at the necessity of God's existence um, and some of the logic involved with that, uh, it really does have some bearing, um, really does have some impact on the way we view the, the necessity of God's existence and the existence of God in general. That goes into the necessity of God too? Yeah, yeah the necessity of God is actually one of the one of the one of the two main arms that you would say, say of okay. of the ontological argument, uh, and there there are many there are various versions, but there's really, really, and we'll talk about this in a moment. But um, there's really two main forms, two main branches uh, of the ontological argument. Gotcha, gotcha. So then, how many forms of the ontological argument um, are there? Essentially, essentially two. I mean, there are there are many different variations, but you can probably limit this down to really two. Uh, the first one being uh, the first one is an argument uh, talking about God's existence as a perfect being. Now, this one probably has um, this is probably the more controversial of the two arms. Uh, this you know, really both of them have their root roots or roots <laughs> in Anselm of Canterbury, but but uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> but uh, there it is. There it is. That's right. But the, uh, the the first one talks about the perfect nature of God's existence. So if you can envision the, 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 even the ability, Anselm argues, to envision a perfect being. Uh, in some way argues to the existence of that being uh, because if it weren't and some people might even say that if God is if a perfect God is possible in in uh, one possible world then he's then he would really be possible in all possible worlds and again this gets a little more philosophical so it doesn't have the the uh, one-two punch of some of the other arguments. But when you really start contemplating some of these, some of the things about perfect being, and and uh, and this kind of even meshes in with the moral argument a little bit, th then it does stand to reason that that there that there must be a being of some sort. But the really the second 
The second form of the ontological argument really has a lot more weight, and that's the argument from God's necessity. And in some ways, you can even go back and look at uh, the cosmological argument of saying that there has to be um, a necessary being to account for the existence of anything. Mm-hmm. And so um, you can tie that in with a cosmological argument, but you really, you, you even really essentially go back to the idea of necessary beings and contingent beings. We use this with the cosmological argument, but it really has its basis with the ontological argument too. That you know, Curtis, you've never met my parents, but but the existence, my existence, is contingent on the existence of Kinda my mother and father. So so even though you've never met them, you know they exist. And likewise, you know I've I've met your mom online, uh, but I've never met your mom and dad in person. But even if I never met your mom online, I knew that she had to exist because of your existence. Your existence is contingent upon a mother and father. And you really take that back far enough, and then you could say that the existence really of anything uh, is contingent upon the existence of a spaceless, powerful being, and that being must be God. I mean, it kind of blends in with the, the uh, cosmological argument to a degree, but if you really you know press it further, gotcha. you know you you can really see the ontological basis of of God's ex- existing as a necessary being. So then you could say that the the Kalam and the ontological argument kind of kind of separate from each other, yeah, um, into more of a personal being then. Yeah, the the ontological argument, I mean, the Kalam cosmological argument would say something along the lines that there must be a being, a, a mm-hmm. godlike being, but the ontological argument would refine that down uh, to say, to speak more of, his, of this being's moral character, more of this being's existence as a necessary being to account for really the existence of anything. I mean, so even gotcha. the cosmological argument is going to look more at the beginning of the universe and what brought those things, what brought the, what brought the universe into existence. The ontological argument is going to look at okay, why, why does anything exist? Um, you, you know, not just the universe. Why does anything exist in general? Uh, why do laws of nature exist? And and this kind of flows over even yeah, to yeah. the information argument. Uh, why do we have, and, and I find this very compelling with the information. I mean, so you push it back far enough. I mean, let, let's push the whole creation evolution debate aside. Um, even if evolution is true, then you have to, something has to account for the process and procedure for it to work according to the way it does. Nature, as we said on a previous podcast, is just a set of all things. It's not a living being. Right. So right. nature by itself can do nothing. Something has to nothing, put the yeah. information together. Something has to put the information in place and bring those processes and procedures together. I mean, there's a there's a uh, Super Mario movie out, and, and I've used this illustration before about Super Mario Brothers. What what if Mario was talking to Luigi one day, and Luigi says, Mario says, you know, this this uh, all of this world must just sprung into existence by itself. And Mario says to Luigi, Mario, you're, you're silly. You're, you're crazy. There must have been a programmer that designed all of this thing together. 
And of course, we know that a programmer did. The same thing happens with our universe uh, mm-hmm. in a different scale, different sphere. You know, it the existence of anything speaks to the um, necessity of something greater than than the world as it is. Mm. Mm. So then, let's go into Anselm's uh, ontological argument uh, of God as a, as a perfect being. Okay, so Anselm of Canterbury uh, lived from 1033 to 1109. <laughs> um, and so uh, the, the first form of the ontological argument speaks to God as, uh, as a perfect being. And so Geisler summarizes Anselm's argument as, as follows. Number one, God is by definition an absolutely perfect being. Two, existence is a perfection. Therefore, God must exist. If God did not exist, then he would be lacking one perfection, namely existence. But if God lacked any perfection, then he would not be absolutely perfect. And if God is, by definition, an absolutely perfect being, therefore, an absolutely perfect being, God must exist. Now, it <laughs> this came under attack by Immanuel Kant. I do think there are some things about this argument that are are valid. I think that um, you know, looking at God is you know, we we see the imperfections of the world, and it it causes us to look for a perfect standard. Um, we may never achieve it, but you know, the, to 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 have a sense of regulation, we have an idea of what the perfect must be. And so the ultimate idea of the perfect must be God. And so if God is lacking in anything, and even in existence, then, then I mean, some people, for some people this isn't very persuasive, and I could understand why for some people it wouldn't be. But uh, it, essentially, it essentially comes down to the idea of God existing as a, as a perfect being and just the idea of there being a perfect being must be must speak to the existence of something greater than us. And uh, mm. you know, some people would say something. Well, you can envision a perfect comic book character, but that doesn't mean necessarily that that comic book character exists. Well, granted, that's right. But at the same token, if you if you take this argument in corroboration with some of the other arguments cosmological and even other versions of the ontological argument then I, then I would then I think that to a degree um, you could say that God must by essence be perfect I don't know the way that Anselm lays it out necessarily that it's going to be convincing for everyone you know and, and granted I, and I get that but I do think that once you build the foundation of God existing, then I think the argument does appeal to the fact that God would be a, a perfect being. Hmm. Uh, those are some big arguments, some big, <clears throat> some big discussions to wrap your head around. It, it is, and and this one, and I would just tell everybody, if if it seems difficult to understand, you're not alone. Of all the arguments, this one is probably the most difficult to wrap our minds around. I mean, it takes some deep thought, deep thinking. At least the first version of the argument does. Now, for me, the second one 
is um, is a lot better, and I think it really is harder hitting. Mm-hmm. And so, scripturally, how can we look at this with you know from from reading the Bible? How can we get this idea then, Brian, of a, of a perfect being and stuff? I, just just kind of an off-the-cuff question, you know, I would think you'd be able to start by Genesis 1. Yeah, I think you could. I think looking even at some of the Psalms, I remember I was reading a Psalm to someone the other day, and uh, I can't remember if it's Psalm 100, Psalm 103, uh, but the Psalm was talking about for that God is good, His mercy endures forever, um, mm-hmm. that standard of perfection, you know, is that standard of absolute goodness is found in God. I think even in John's statement in First John, where he talks about that God is light and in Him there is no darkness at all, I think mm-hmm. that's twofold. I think l- literally God is light. He exudes light. I think there's no doubt about that. I talk about that in mm-hmm. the book Conversations About Heaven. There's no doubt about that. In Revelation... And uh, right. other passages of Scripture, the light that that uh, that flows from the existence of God is unlike anything imaginable. But metaphorically, it, it's also true if you look at God if, at light being a symbol of goodness, then God is the absolute good, and in Him there is no darkness found; there is no evil found whatsoever in God's being. So it really has a, a literal and a metaphorical sense. In 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 that regard as well, James even tells us that uh, that uh, all good gifts come from God above. Uh, he's a perfect yep. giver. Um, you know, J- Jesus even says, "Be ye perfect." Now he's talking about being you know mature, but be ye perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So there's a standard of perfection, a standard of maturity found in God. God is the banner of the absolute good, and so I think when it comes to Perfection when it comes to goodness, unequivocally, the Bible tells us that God is the absolute yep. best possible standard of yep. all things good. Yeah, I mean, even nature answers to His call, you know, and does what He wants it to do. So, yeah, and that follows Thomas Aquinas. Is about the earthquake? What the? Yeah, yeah, and Thomas Aquinas, he um, what was Thomas? So, uh, so Thomas Aquinas, he. He argues from, um, let me go back here, where did it go? Um, he argued, I'm in the wrong spot, from, um, I was trying to find it, where, where did it go? But, but he had this kind of idea, and it wasn't quite like Anselm's, but it was uh, this idea of perfection and yeah, the the degradations of perfection shows that there must be a perfect standard, and that perfect standard would be God. So it, it's it's kind of like it. It's a little different, but kind of like it. Um, and, you know, Thomas Aquinas is just an amazing man. He's an absolute genius. I mean, whether you agree with all of his uh, theological points or not, I mean, I just you can't help but admire the man with the depth, the level and depth that he went. In his writings, it's just absolutely amazing. Yeah, and at the time period of when he was, you know, on the earth, it wasn't like he, it wasn't like he could, you know, uh, dictate into a computer and make it happen. It was, 
you know? Absolutely. So what is the second form of the ontological argument concerning God's existence as a necessary being? So the second form, in my opinion, is a little harder hitting. Uh, There was a monk around the 11th century by the name of Gonilo who opposed the argument and and, and what a name, Ganino, Ganilo. <laughs> Anselm is. <laughs> I just get a kick out of people's names sometimes. <laughs> but Anselm insisted that the very concept of a necessary being demanded his existence, and so uh, again, using leaning on Geisler here a little bit uh, for for some of these for some of these things tonight. Uh, he mm-hmm. he summarizes the argument as follows by three statements. One, if God exists, we must conceive of him as a necessary being. Two, but if God, if by defi- but by definition, a necessary being cannot not exist. Therefore, if a necessary being can exist, then it must exist. And so, th- th- this may sound like a little wordplay, but it actually is quite penetrating, especially. Um, when um, when you look at other arguments that's been used, especially with Alvin Plantinga, Alvin Plantinga has defended uh, this argument. We'll get into that in a few moments. But I think that just even going back to the illustration we were using a while ago about the parents and about parents and children, there's it just is, is logically sound to to know that certain things are necessary to account for the existence of contingent beings, contingent meaning those things that rely upon, uh, that can only exist because of something else. Um, this equipment, you know, the, were you both using computers and microphones and, right. and technology? These things, we know, logically, these things just didn't spring into existence of its own accord. There had to be... What? Su- <laughs> yeah, surprising, isn't it? But these things had to have someone to put it together. And so it only stands to reason, just as as the designers were necessary to account for the existence of these devices, so there must be a necessary being known as God to account for the existence of anything. So, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. There's that. And not only the computer that just sits here, but also the programs that run within it. They had to have a programmer. Absolutely. So... Yep, so Alvin Plantinga defends the ontological argument. What ha- what was his argument in favor of the argument? So, argument in favor of the argument. Yeah. <laughs> so, Alvin Plantinga, I took a philosophy class in my undergrad at Gardner-Webb, and that's before I was inundated with some of these materials. And I remember reading some of... Alvin Plantinga's material, and I read it five times and still didn't understand what he said. <laughs> he's just that That's deep. That's why we exist. <laughs> That's right. He, he's just that deep of a writer. But Plantinga defended the necessity of God's existence in the ontological argument in his book, The Nature of Necessity. And, uh, he, and, and even William Lane Craig writes that he says, uh, quite to my surprise, uh, Craig became convinced that this was actually a good argument for God's existence, and it was an ontological argument. Before this time, Craig said that he really wasn't a fan of the ontological argument, but when Alvin Plantinga defended it the way he did, 
then he really began to believe that uh, ontological argument had some merit. So uh, he talks about, Plantinga conceives of God as being a maximally excellent being. And so Plantinga takes the maximal excellence to include properties as omniscience, omnipotence, moral perfection. Moral perfection. A being that has maximal excellence in every possible world would have what Plantinga calls maximal greatness in every world. And so, um, so the argument goes like this. In their six statements, if it is, it is possible. All right, so number one, it is possible that a maximally great being exists. So let's just throw it out there. It is possible that a maximally great being could exist. Two, if it's possible that a maximally great being exists, then a maximally great being exists in some possible world. So if there's some possible world that a maximally great being exists, um, then it exists in every possible world. And number four, if a maximally great being exists in every possible world, then he must exist in the actual world. Number five, if a maximally great being exists in the actual world, then a maximally great being exists. Number six, in conclusion, therefore a maximally great being must exist. And so um, I know that's complicated <laughs> because we're talking about Alvin Plantinga. <laughs> but what he's essentially saying that is that if you remove the barriers and say that it is possible for a maximally great being to exist, and say you look at these possible worlds that could exist, if it is possible for this maximally great being to exist in one possible world, then it means he must exist in all possible worlds for such a maximally great being to exist. And if he exists in all possible worlds, then he must exist in the actual world, and therefore you can say that this maximally great being exists, and that maximally great being is God. Uh, so if there's a potential that such a being could exist, then looking at the way things have worked or, or do work and looking at the, the um, quite frankly, the, again, going back to the issues of necessity and contingency, then it stands to reason that a maximally great being does exist and that maximally great being is God. Hmm. Uh, again, like I said, big stuff to grab and grab a hold of. It, it is, but that is truly. This is why we. This is why we do it, though, is to bring this down so we can have this discussion, and 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 allow people to kind of kick the ball around on the on the you know the field, and and you know we're there to answer these questions. Some of the stuff is it. it I'm sitting there like, well, there's, yeah, there's just easy ways to say it. Like, mm -hmm. yeah, it exists. Look around, you know? Well, and, and that's so. why I'm becoming more and more compelled by, uh, I mean, I, I'm, I'm somewhere between a classicalist and an evidentialist in my uh, apologetic approach. But the more I look at these arguments, the more I'm becoming more and more convinced of D Douglas Grutice's perspective in that, uh, that a cumulative case is best because if you look at the ontological argument, by itself it's complicated. Um, but if you look at it along with the cosmological argument, along with um, the argument from design, the teleological argument that is, 
if you look at it from the moral argument that we're going to talk about among among many others that exist, then you've got a strong case. So yeah. I, I wouldn't just limit the, the defense. I mean, because if you're coming at it like a courtroom and you're looking at all the data that's out there, I mean, lay it all out on the table. And I think when you do and you look at all these arguments together and all the data and all the evidence out there, I think you have a strong, compelling case for the existence of God. In fact, I, I think it's beyond a shadow of doubt. I mean, even if I weren't a Christian, I would I would believe in God because I think that the data is so strong in favor of a God, a maximally great being we call God, for for that mm-hmm. being to exist. Mm. So, since you mentioned it, um, the moral argument. Let's jump into that one. What is the moral argument? So, so the moral argument is uh, an argument that says that, uh, and and quite frankly, this is probably one of the most compelling arguments for most people. Uh, I think Gary Habermas, Wimlin, Craig, many other people who have gone across to uh, Alvin Plantinga said it too. Many many big name defenders of the faith who have gone across the world teaching and speaking at uh, universities have have said and assessed that the moral argument has the greatest impact for young students than, than any other argument out there. Hmm. Uh, it really is one of the heaviest hitters. And it essentially hmm. says that we all have this, this notion of, of the good. We all have this notion of of what is right and what is wrong. And so the argument will look in it uh, and say that if there is a moral code that we live by, then someone must have established that moral code and that the, that lawgiver must be God and must be a good, perfect being that we know of as God. And so the argument from... The moral argument argues that the, the the existence of morality must flow from the existence of a moral lawgiver, and that moral lawgiver is God. Mm. Otherwise, then it becomes just uh, relative to the group that you are being around or relative to your own world, which isn't that what we're seeing today coming out in, in the culture today. Yeah, and it really is, and and the power and impact of this is because, is in my opinion, all the other arguments that exist out there really fail. the The only thing, the only one that that uh, you might could argue that might not necessarily be Christian view is the Platonist view, viewpoint. If you if you hold that morality is a lot like these um, these eternal forms that exist or and you don't even have to say they're eternal but if if there are like two planes of existence the the um, the material world and and these what plato called forms coming from socrates called these forms th- these blueprints these immaterial blueprints that exist he believes exist in reality and so if you have if morality is like these blueprints that exist on its own, if they've existed for all eternity, then maybe you don't need God. But the question is, even there, I think you still have to have someone 
because again the cosmological argument and you look at some of the other things you still have to have someone to to bring it together the the christian platonist would say that these forms exist only only exist because they came from the mind of god and so god created them from his mind these forms exist because god thought them and then so that really doesn't again you get around you get to the point i think that you still have the necessity of god's existence even with christian platonism mm-hmm. But but that's going down a whole other avenue. But I'm just I just say that I'm just mentioning that is because uh, that's the only argument I have ever seen that is even anywhere reasonable that that could remove God out of the equation. But even then, there's there's so many problems with it. There's so many issues with the uh, with with that argument that I don't think that it necessarily. It necessarily stands. So um, we got to mention we got to mention C.S. Lewis in this, and so what was um, his version of the moral moral argument? And this this one's probably going to be the most the most well recognized of, of the ones that we talk about in his book *Mere Christianity*. Uh, he he gave the basis of this moral argument as follows: the moral law implies a moral lawgiver. There is an objective moral law, and so therefore there is an objective moral lawgiver. If if you have objective morals, then you've got to account for for the existence of someone or something that established that moral code into the ethos of of humanity. I mean, because we at the root of it, we all know that it's wrong to rape. We all know that it's wrong to hurt young innocent children. We we know that. That's why we have such a guttural instinct. We, at the root of it, we know that it's wrong. These mass shootings are wrong. We have these guttural instincts when these things happen, because we know that it's broken some major moral code. Um, yeah. The reason that's the reason why we have and we should have these reactions to these events. Um, yeah. But that comes from an embedded morality that each of us have in our lives. There's another argument that some people give out there. Well, maybe morality is based upon what the culture deems as good. Mm-hmm. Well, run with that. Place yourself in 1940s Nazi Germany. Uh, the government right. said that it was it was okay to kill 11 million Jews and and uh, African Americans and and um, and uh, even cr- Catholics and Christians, anyone who opposed Hitler and his regime, it was okay to 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 starve them and work them to death. It was okay to place them in gas chambers. But people knew, like Diedrich Bonhoeffer and many others, gave their lives saying, "No, that's not right." Uh, even though the culture right. saying that it's right, we know internally that there's something amiss with this, there's something not right. And that internal balance, that internal code uh, that, that people... I mean, I mean, quite frankly, when the world realized what had happened in Germany, and Auschwitz and Dachau and many of these other areas, uh, th- there was a guttural instinct to that. I remember meeting a... Uh, um, no, I met a man years ago. He's gone to be with the Lord now, but uh, he fought at the Battle of the Bulge. And... Um, his wife often asked him, said that, uh, you know, 
what did you see? And, and he would say, honey, you, you just... You just don't even even want to know. But then later in life, he he had uh, Alzheimer's and dementia, and he would talk about bulldozers just just pushing thousands of bodies in these mass graves uh, that that the Nazis left behind. I mean, it's just unimaginable, unimaginable horrors that happened there. Um, and 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 the. That's far from the only place this ever, that's happened. I knew a lady. In fact, she's been on the podcast before. Uh, Siv Ashley. She grew up in the in the Cambodian killing fields when Pol Pot and his regime came through. I mean, there have n- numerous times and numerous occasions there have been uh, these uh, these evil dictators who have come around and and killed massive innocent people, uh, massive amounts of innocent people. We know that that's wrong. And so that speaks to that inner inner moral code we have. Mm. So Dr. David Baggett um, has, has a take on it. What what is his take on the moral argument? Well, Dr. Baggett, he doesn't have necessarily, or to my knowledge, and, and Dr. Baggett, if you're if you're listening to this, you may want to correct me because <laughs> he's been on the podcast before. But but Dr. Baggett uses more instead of a deductive argument that we have seen, he uses more of an abductive argument, which is kind of more like a cumulative case uh, oh. that that he uses, and and he he says that uh, you know, it doesn't have that. Uh, necessarily, the syllogisms that you find with with other things, but it, it he does present you know many good reasons for believing in the moral argument. In fact, he is known for being one of the greatest moral apologists of our day and time. Uh, and he speaks to five things particularly: the mor- moral goodness, uh, moral obligations, moral knowledge moral transformation, and moral providence. Uh, he even speaks to, um, I think it's called divine, divine command theory, where where God commands it because God is the absolute, he even calls it the Anselmian God. I've, I've stolen, excuse me, borrowed his terminology there <laughs> of, of the Anselmian God, that God is a maximally great being. And so if God commands something morally, then it must be good because of the moral nature, the good moral nature of God. So he, he goes through, and this is one of his books, The Morals of the Story. David and Mary Beth Baggett both wrote this. It's a really good book. It's written so that um, you know numerous people can read it. In fact, I think they even said jokingly at the first of it, you know, uh, something along the lines that uh, uh, this book isn't for everyone. It's not for dead people, for example, but it's for everyone else, maybe except zombies. So unless you're yeah. unless you're dead or a zombie, this book is intended for you. Oh, <laughs> uh, he's got a string of comedy there. Yeah, yeah, that's good. So then, concerning the ontological and moral arguments, what can we learn about God from these arguments and? I think I think both of these arguments speak well. One, you know, the ontological argument speaks to the necessity of God's existence, and I and I really think, even though it's a comp- it's probably the most complicated of all the apologetic arguments that exist, I, I grant you that. 
But I do think if you take the time and you get to learn the ontological argument, I do think there is a powerful punch. Mm-hmm. It, it's well worth the time to study it because I do think you can, In fact, I'll be honest, when I was struggling with my faith, I came to, you know, the resurrection was a big thing that solidified my return to the faith. Um, mm-hmm. Historical issues were too. But, but it was actually really... Uh, not only the cosmological argument, but it was a form of this understanding of God existing as a necessary being and being a perfect being that really kind of sealed the deal, among other things. It was one of the big clinchers. When I finally took the, when I took the time to really get to understand this argument and ontologically and the necessity of God's existence, it really became a knockout punch for my doubt. Mm. It really knocked, knocked my doubt out for the count. Interesting. Um, Interesting. So it is worth taking the time to, to work through. Uh, if you know, in Anselm's presentation of it, some people even argue that Anselm wasn't even intending to present an argument that that his whole ontological argument was just a an expression of God's absolute moral existence as an absolute moral perfect being, uh, existing as a maximally great being. And and but you know, even still. Even still, I do think the ontological argument shows us that God exists as a as a perfectly good, necessary being. I think the moral argument, whereas you know, the cosmological argument, the design argument, a lot of these other arguments speak to God's power, wisdom, and strength. The moral argument makes it a little more personable. Uh, yeah, it shows this argument shows that God not only exists as a maximally great being, but God exists as a is a really good, forgiving being. That, that God is good. God can be trusted. God is righteous, and God desires what's best for us because He's given us this moral code. Then God Himself must be good Himself, the absolute good. In fact. So I think these are some of the things we can learn about God from from these arguments. Very much, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of stuff there in this in this one. It was a short little distance, but a lot of stuff in there. Um, and, and just encourage the listeners to go back and 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 go back and re-listen and listen where you need to. You can do scrub speed on your on your podcast or your uh, or even YouTube and and check it out and and really research this to kind of get a grip on on how to argue through some of this or really and maybe not even argue just think about it think mm-hmm. about how to get through it you know absolutely so there so there we have it folks brian and i finished out the ontological argument uh, <laughs> we want to thank you for spending time together with us and we value that time our prayers that this podcast helps stretch your mind and becomes a place to strengthen your faith as we strive to create an atmosphere of discussion and as a reliable source of information. Join us next time on the Bellator Christie Podcast. And until next time, Brian and I say, Soldier, Soldier on, friends. You've been listening to the Bellator Christie Podcast with Brian Chilton and Curtis Evelo. This podcast is an exclusive production of Bellator Christie Ministries and is protected under Creative Commons Copyright. All rights reserved. The views expressed on this podcast may not reflect the opinions of Bellator Christie Ministries and its affiliates. We thank you for listening and hope you'll consider leaving a positive review. 
To see more from Bellator Christi Ministries, go to bellatorchristi.com. If you enjoy the Bellator Christie podcast, why not join us for the live taping of the show? This show is recorded every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. And to catch the live show, consider going over to youtube.com forward slash Bellator Christie. We hope to see you there.